Welcome to the Way Community Podcast. Here you'll find various teachings and messages from within our community and also from guest speakers. If you're interested in finding out more about us, visit our website, the-way.com.au. We pray that this episode edifies you. Well, welcome to session two of the Blessed Hope. Did I say that right then? I don't want to don't want to make it sound like I'm disdaining it. The Blessed Hope. No, no, it is. It's the Blessed Hope. It's it's something exciting that we're looking forward to, and uh, uh, it's. Last week, I think we had a great time looking at the resurrection and what a wonderful promise it is that these tired, sad old bodies are going to one day look marvellous as they get the extreme makeover from heaven, which is going to beat anything that any TV show can do. And we're, we, we, our, this old mortality is going to put on immortality and... It's so exciting to think about. But before we go any further in this course, it is absolutely imperative to understand that there truly is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When you truly understand what our righteousness means, it will transform your view of tomorrow and of facing Jesus Christ. From there, you will see so clearly that there is a totally different resurrection for us believers that is completely incompatible to the other resurrections that we see in Scripture. And this will help you appreciate that there is a consummation of the purpose of the church, what we call the rapture, which is totally separated from the judgments that are poured out on the world. And this session is going to be about, I guess, bringing forth the evidence and proving to you that as a believer, you are not going to step into heaven and face any form of punitive judgment or even examination before God. Now, for some people, you go, yeah, yeah, well, of course, Todd. Yeah, well, actually, there are a great deal of people, especially even people who have listened to things like Driven by Eternity or... Um, other such material, where there's this idea that somehow when we go into heaven, that there's basically one of three scenarios. The first scenario is that we're going to find ourselves before God and every deed that we have performed, good and bad, is going to be played up on the big screen and and we're, we're going to have to sit there and grit our teeth as it shows all the times that that we swore or got angry or looked at something we shouldn't have and oh my goodness Reinhard Bonke's over there watching and and the Apostle Peter's there and my mum you know and, uh, 
And they're all watching all the terrible secret sins that I committed throughout my life. Um, I was talking to someone uh, just recently who was saying that is the opinion that they had been given about what happens when they go to heaven. And he was saying to me, and you know what? I'm not really looking forward to it. I'm not. I'm actually not looking forward to going to heaven because I don't like the fact that I've got to face up to all that stuff again. And one of the most releasing things that he had ever heard was when I told him that the believer does not face judgment. He had never heard that before. So there are people, and, and you can, he, he was saying to me, yeah, it's like, there's the scripture, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But under the table, there's, oh, you're going to get it when you get to heaven. And th this is what he lived with. Now, there's a, a second school of thought, which is kind of a midstream, that, that somehow we're, we're, going to, we're going to have to face God and that there will be decisions made about whether we have been good or evil and, or, or, you know, whether we are deserving of our rewards and that maybe we, we lose rewards and that sort of thing. Um, but it's not like it all gets played out on the big screen. You just, it's like facing a judgment. And then there's the third school that I want to show you tonight. And, and of course, I'm showing you this one because I believe that this is what the scripture truly teaches on this matter. And, and the, the other thing is, one would think that any kind of teaching that makes you fear meeting your Lord and Saviour must have something inherently wrong with that teaching. Uh, am I right in saying that? I mean, intuitively, it should tell you that there's something wrong with the teaching if, if that teaching puts a fear in you of meeting your Lord and Saviour. Yes, what was the blood for if, if there's this thing that we have to face at the end? So I believe that what I'm going to show you tonight is going to give you evidence from the Scripture to prove that the righteous are resurrected not to judgment, but they are resurrected to reward. So that's what we're going to have a look at tonight. So the first major point I want to make is that Jesus has already been judged by God for you or instead of you. All right? So let's have a look at some scriptures around this and unpack this idea. And this is, this is one of the things that, that unless you understand the, the true nature of God's sacrifice and his propitiation on your behalf, if you don't fully understand this idea, then of course you will think, well, somehow I've still got to pay. There's still a bill that has to be rendered somewhere along the line. So it's really important. This is a key foundational doctrine that we need to get right in the church. You see, this is the thing. Well, here we are, we're talking about this end time stuff, but can, I'm, I'm hoping that what you see through this is that what you believe about the end times actually shapes your life now. 
Because if, if you understand this stuff properly, it's going to enhance your relationship with Jesus. Because instead of you cowering away, expecting that he's, he's somehow at, at worst about to zap you when you walk into heaven, or at best, you know, he's sitting there clucking his tongue in disappointment with you. If that's your, your picture that you have of Jesus, of course you're going to stand afar off from him. Of course your, your relationship with him is going to be distant. So this, this is a great example of how what we believe about the future affects the life that we have today. All right, so let's, let's get into this. Christ has been judged for our sin dying in our place, bearing our sin and judgment on the cross as our substitute. All right? So everything that you deserved, whether it's in the past or even in your future, Jesus has already substitutionally atoned for that sin through his death on the cross. Big words, which means he's picked up the bill and you get off scot-free. That's the idea of substitutionary atonement. He has paid the price for you. So let's, let's get into some scripture. Like I say, let's wrap some scripture around this. Uh, we're going to start off in Isaiah Chapter 53, verse 4 to 6. And again, be taking notes on this. It, you know, this is great stuff to, to tuck away because you will meet other Christians who have got these bad ideas in their head about Jesus and to be able to go, let's go have a look at what the Bible has to say about this stuff and to show them that. And that's a great thing about doing these sorts of teachings is I get the chance to go, let me arm you with a Gatling gun full of scriptures to shoot down the, the, the <laughs> let's go there, Todd, the doctrines of demons that are floating around that are, are robbing people of their relationship with Jesus. All right, so Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6 reading from the New Living Translation. Um, and if I, if I don't say what we're reading from, then it's all coming out of the NLT as my base version. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows, or it was your sorrows, or, or let's bring it right here. It was my sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for my rebellion, crushed for my sins. He was beaten so I could be whole. He was whipped so I could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths 
to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid upon him the sins of us all. Wow. And the thing, this is a thousand years before Jesus arrives. Or somewhere thereabouts. Probably more like about 600. But um, why quibble on those numbers, right? Uh, isn't that amazing that Isaiah is getting a picture of Messiah and, and is saying, upon him, my sins, my rebellion, he, he carries it all. It is all laid upon him. Second scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And this is good because we've got it out of the Old Testament. Let's get it out of the New Testament as well. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made, made right with God through Christ. Isn't that good? I, I, I really want to read that one again. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So who here in the room is in Christ? So you are already right with God. Which is great. She'll be right, mate. <laughs> it's been made right. And that the, the, the thing is, it is an absolute statement. It's not saying, well, you know, you've crossed the line, but, you know, he's actually scowling at you. <laughs> no, when, when God looks at you, he sees a son or a daughter who has exactly the same level of purity and holiness and righteousness as his first son, Jesus. That is how he sees you. Now, if that is how he sees you because of what Jesus did, when you arrive in heaven, how do you think that God is going to greet you? Son! Right? You know, now, I, I've got a great Dane, as many of you know, and, and when one of the curious pleasures for us dog owners is there's nothing quite like being furiously sniffed when you get home. You know, and they, they come around <laughs> and they're sniffing all over you to find out where you've been and what you've been up to. So the thing I want you to understand about this is that when you get into heaven... God can come sniffing around you all he likes and all he's going to smell on you is a sweet perfume of holiness just like his son Jesus. There is nothing about you that turns him off. So when we face him, we can face him secure in the knowledge that we are going to be welcomed with open arms. Oh, yeah, but Todd, surely he's going to welcome us with open arms and then take us into the side room to deal with us there. Is that the way it works? Well, let's keep having a look at some more scriptures. First Peter, 
chapter 2, verse 24. He personally, being Jesus, carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is, for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Now, I want you, I want you to... I, I know that by his stripes we are healed. I know that we can appropriate that scripture, that if I have sickness or disease... Or, or something wrong in my body that because of what Jesus went through on the cross, I can be made whole. My body can be healed. But I also want you to see this scripture in the context that it's being given here. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his stripes... You are healed. This is not a statement just about your body. It's a holistic statement about everything that you are. All that you are is made right with, with, G or with God through Jesus Christ because of what he carried in his body and, and as he was carrying it, was then abused for that. The sacrifice was effectively made, not just for the healing of your body, but the cleansing of your sin. Isn't that good? <laughs> I'm hoping that tonight for, for some of you here, and, and certainly for, for those that are listening, that... In hearing this, there is going to actually become a liberty in realising I am right with God. I, I, am, I have been made right with God. I am cleansed. I am pure. I am free of my sin. Yeah, but Todd, I'm, 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 I'm still struggling with sin. You know, I, I, I still do sin. See, this is the scandal of it all. Despite the fact that you have repented of your sin and turned away, even if you do sin in the future, he's got that covered too. And it's an absolute scandal. And it shouldn't be like that. And you don't deserve it. And yet, that's what he gives you. Wow. That is exciting. That's freeing. Next scripture, Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 to 26. Yet God, in his grace, freely, oh, that's a good word. What a great, I, I, just, I just want to pause on, on that word for a minute. Let me get it on, on screen. Freely, that's a really good word. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. So you're saying that I don't have to pay anything for it? Yes. There is nothing that you have to pay. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. 
For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin, not you. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and included them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Wow. So sin requires a penalty. And that penalty, the penalty of death. And that's what comes as God's holy judgment on sin. Jesus Christ, the sinless and perfect Son of God, the only one who could qualify as our substitute, died to satisfy the demands of God's absolute holiness. Sin calls for judgment and the cross of Jesus Christ became the place of that judgment. It was there Christ paid the penalty for the sin of the world. Therefore, those of us who become partakers in this suffering on the cross don't face any judgment as a result of it. Isn't that good? You are free from all judgment because Christ took that judgment for you. All right, 1 John 2, 2 says, He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. So Christ has been judged for our sins. He's died in our place. And bearing that sin, he did so as your substitute. So what about the sin that's going on in my life right now? Well... He dealt with that too. Christ's judgment for sin's reign, the judgment of your sin nature, he dealt with that as well. Not only did Jesus die for your sin as the Lamb of God, as we're told in John 1.29, but he died to break the reign of sin in your life and in the lives of those who put their trust in him as their saviour. This means that though that, sorry, through co-identification with Christ in his death on the cross, your sin nature was also judged and crucified with Christ in his death so that its power has been broken or neutralized in your life. Though the death of Christ does not obliterate the presence of the sin nature, and though it is still a powerful enemy, as we're told in Romans chapter 7, verses 
15 and 24. The believer's union with Christ in his death provides for divine forgiveness for the fact of the sin nature and for victory over its reigning power. So do you have a sin nature? Yes. We all acknowledge it. We know it's there. Does it have to rule you now? No, it does not. The great thing about it is it wasn't just your sin that got nailed to the cross, but it was also your sin nature that got nailed to the cross. And so that thing got killed. It got, it, the, the power that it had to reign over your life was destroyed. But Todd, it does reign. There, there are times when sin reigns in my life. Yes, but it doesn't have to be that way. You see, the thing is, is that you used to be a slave to it. You had no choice but to yield to it. But now, through the work of the cross, you actually have been empowered. You have been given the grace. See, see the word grace is not about permission to sin. Grace is the empowering of the Holy Spirit not to sin. And so you actually have a choice now where you can partner with God's grace, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, so that you do not have to sin. That's a good thing. That's exciting. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 to 11. Let's have a look at it together. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. Hallelujah. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Let's have a look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. Isn't it, is it good to have, you know, yeah, yeah, I've read these scriptures before, but isn't it good to kind of look at them lumped together and, and for the, you know, the, the, the weight of them to, to kind of all land at the one time? 
Colossians 2 verses 10 to 13. So you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were, inverted commas, circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptised, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins. Isn't that great? I, I love look look at all the metaphors that that uh, Paul's throwing in here to to make the point. He's saying, well, like, like a married couple, you've been unified to him. Like you've been, you've been joined to him. You've been made one with him. And, and so you're under he, him as your head. He's the authority in your life now, not sin. It's like you've been circumcised. This stuff, this sin nature has been cut away from you. So it's, it's no longer a part of you. Now, well, Todd, there are, there are times, though, that I, I sin. I actually feel like sinning. Yeah, and, and Romans, you know, Paul does a really good job of explaining through chapters 7 and 8 that that's actually not you. It feels like you because the enemy knows how to push your buttons. He knows how to kind of get into your headspace. But because you are the righteousness of Christ now, those thoughts have to come from him. Those, those wicked intents and thoughts, you can't generate that on your own anymore. It's been cut away from you. But Todd, I, I still have those thoughts. No, you don't. This is a wonderful thing. When you come to understand this, it will be one of the most freeing and liberating things that takes place in your life. Those thoughts are not yours. They are foreign, alien intrusions that are coming into the realm of your thought processes and, and they do not belong to you. They are foreign. They are alien. They are not part of who you are. They are not part of your nature. They are being injected into you from a malevolent force. But Todd, I feel depressed. No, you don't feel depressed. You, those thoughts are being implanted from the enemy. But the feeling, but the feeling's real. It's not real. It's a fabrication. It doesn't come from you because you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. But it feels so real. Well, welcome to the spirit realm because the spirit realm is more real than any of this stuff that's going on. But the fact is, this stuff that feels more real to you is actually a falsehood, 
a fabrication. It is, it is a lie. It is a counterfeit that is being injected into your realm from the outside. Those thoughts of lust, that is not you. That is coming from the enemy. What about hatred? It isn't you. Bitterness. No, you can't be bitter because you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So all this stuff that you are experiencing, look, <laughs> one of the best things that you can do to get your head around this is watch The Matrix. I know it's an old movie now, but, but it is a wonderful metaphor. Uh, I, hey, look, I'm eating this steak, but it's not real. It's, it, it, I'm watching the cars go by and the people walking and the buildings, and none of it is real. Despite the fact that I can feel it and touch it, this is what happens in the movie The Matrix. It feels so real, but it's all a fabrication. And, and that's what I'm trying to get across to you about these things that you think are real, that you think are in your life and controlling you. It is not you. It's not coming from you. They aren't real feelings. They aren't real emotions. They're, they're counterfeit injections that are coming into your being from the outside. And when you come to understand this, you, it, it is so freeing because you're no longer looking at yourself going, oh, I am so terrible because I am having these feelings. You're able to go, hang on a minute. Where did this garbage come from? Because this does not belong to me. This is not my anxiety. This is not my depression. This, this is not my fear. This is something that is being imparted, implanted into me from an external force. It is not who I am. And because it's not who I am, I'm going to reject it. And as the scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, that's good preaching. I hope someone's recording that. All right, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've got a, a great little story around this. I, I met this young man one day who was right into the whole zombie culture. And I said to him, you know, I'm a zombie. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he said, that's so cool. <laughs> it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. All right, Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. 
Let me read verse 2 again. And because you belong to him, who he belongs to him? Yep. Do you belong to him? Give me an affirmation. Yes. 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 Right. Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has already in the past freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. It's already happened. You don't have to fight for it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to battle. It's already done. You are already free. The reign of sin in your life has come to an end. Um, and as us Aussies like to say, the, you know, the, the reality is it's all over by the shouting. <laughs> yes, there's stuff going on and there's still things happening and that, but it's actually all done. It's all over by the shouting. There's still stuff going on, but it's actually all finished. The battle's won. You have your freedom. You are rightfully allowed to walk in it. So walk in it. Good stuff? Okay. So we are free from sin. We have been made righteous with Christ. We are holy. We are new creations. Are we agreed on that? So why do you think God's going to punitively judge you when you face him? Now, the reason that people think this is because they go, but, but, but I, I read in the Bible, like, like in Revelation, that you know everyone, all the dead, they all come and face Jesus and they, they have to give account and if their name's not in the book, then they get thrown in the lake of fire and all sounds terrible. And the thing that I want you to understand is that there are different seats, inverted commas, thrones, inverted commas, of judgment, inverted commas, throughout the scripture. And the problem that we have is because, basically because we are reading an English Bible that has been translated through the filter of people with a certain mindset on this subject, they tend to to translate words in a way which paints the picture according to their preconception. Okay? And what I want to show you... Now, for those who know me well, you know that I have got a saying about Scripture, which is no gymnastics. You know, no, you know, stretching it and, and you know, I, one of the great teachers I love, Chuck Missler, said that, if you torture the scripture enough, you can get it to confess to anything, right? And I, I, I don't want to do that, but I do want to show some basic things how, how a mindset can cause the translation from the ancient Greek into modern English can, can cause things to come out in a really different way to what was expected. So we're going to have a look at that. I want to introduce you, if you haven't already heard of it before, a, a concept called the Bema seat. And this is the seat, again, inverted commas, of judgment, inverted commas, 
that the righteous, the believers, the body of Christ, the ecclesia will face. And it is a different seat of judgment to the ones that, to other ones that we see throughout Scripture. And if you're not aware of this point, you see, we don't get the word bema in our English Bible. All we get is a seat of judgment. But in the Greek, they use this word bema. Now, I want to paint a picture for you. If I said Matt is an Olympian, he's like, bonus. <laughs> now, if I said Matt is an Olympian, tell me what I am telling you. What, what does it conjure in your mind when I say Matt is an Olympian? Tell me the, the things that you now know about Matt because of that piece of information. He's competed at a World Olympics. He's competed at a World Olympics. Yes. What else do we know about champion. him? He's a champion. What else do we know? Disciplined. He's disciplined. What else do we know about him? Sorry? He's athletic. Yes. Is there anything else you can tell me about him? Yes, he's yes, he has indeed. That's right. His his abilities have been scrutinized at a at a world class level. He's had to make sacrifices. Right? So uh, is is this uh, a good example? The the one word portrays a whole concept of ideas to to us here in modern western Australian culture, that, that one word carries a raft of, of um, thoughts, emotions, concepts by using just that one word. Yes? Okay, so to the ancient Greek, the word bima is just like that word. It's a word that has a whole raft of concepts attached to it. Now, we don't get this word in our English Bible. We simply get the word seat. And it's not real helpful. But throughout the New Testament, especially when it's talking about the righteous, we see this word appearing time and time again, bema. So I want to unpack this for you and let's to have a look at it together. The next prophetic event in God's timetable will be the rapture or the catching up of the body of Christ, the church, as described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. A number of things occur at this time. As we talked about last week, there is the glorification of the living believers in glorified bodies, the resurrection of those believers who have died in the Lord, also having their bodies glorified, and then the translation of both to meet the Lord in the air. This is good stuff. This will be followed by their examination before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the final judgment mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, which is limited to only the unbelieving world. Rather, 
The judgment seat of Christ is for the body of Christ, the church. The judgment seat of Christ is not a place and time where the Lord will mete out punishments for sins committed by the child of God. Rather, it is a place where rewards will be given or lost depending on how one has used his or her life for the Lord. And both Romans chapter 14 verse 10 and 2 Corinthians 5 9 speak of this judgment seat. So we're going to have a look at this together. So what we're going to learn about is this beamer that is mentioned under, it's hidden under this word seat. So Romans 14.10. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So it's, it's telling us that we are going to face this judgment seat. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10 says, So whether we are here in the body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this body. Now, you read that and you go, good or evil. Uh, That's, you know, that sounds like judgment to me, Todd. You know, we must stand before the judgment seat where we will be judged for the good or evil. Who who is is thinking, oh, Todd, this doesn't sound like what you're trying to tell us. Uh, Am I right? Yeah. So this is where we've got to actually look at what the the Greek is telling us and not just take at face value the translation that we've been given, okay? And that's what we're going to do here. Now, this is a translation of one Greek word, the word bima. While beamer is used in the Gospels and in Acts of the raised platform where a Roman magistrate or ruler sat to make decisions and pass sentence, which we see in uh, Matthew 27 and John 19, its use in the epistles by Paul, because of his many allusions to the Greek athletic contests, is more in keeping with its original use among the Greeks. Remember what I said when I said Olympian? Now, if you study carefully the writings of Paul, you'll find out that Paul was a sports nut. He loved sport. If if Paul was alive today, he would have a subscription to ESPN, right? He, he, He loved his sport. And if you think, well, how can you say that, Todd? It's like, read his letters. Sport is peppered all through his writings. It's obvious. He uses sporting illusions to make his point. I'm not like a boxer who's just beating the air. I, I cast off everything to run the race that is set before me. I run as one who is running to win the prize. Right. So everything that he talks about, um, virtually every letter has got some kind of 
like sporting illusion in it. The guy's a sports nut. So it's not surprising that we see this word bima actually coming up in his writings when he's trying to communicate what we face as believers. So um, as, as we've mentioned, the word bima is a raised platform and it was something that was used in the athletic um, contests in Greece uh, or the, the Greek world. Um, the word was taken from the Isthmian Games. Now, for anyone who's done School of the Spirit with me, you might be able to tell me where the Isthmian Games would have been held. On the Isthmus of Corinth. That's right. Yes. So Corinth, Isthmus is a term for a, a, um, a geological, um, it's a land bridge, basically. And that's right where Corinth sat, was on, on an isthmus. And the, the games was where it was held. Oh, I just realised I put the answer in front of me. Yeah. Well, Dad, Ben, you can read. Um, so... Um, the Isthmian Games was where the contestants would compete for the prize under the careful scrutiny of judges, as we were saying before when we were talking about Olympians. Right? They have performed before panels of judges and they would make sure that every rule of the contest was obeyed. And we see this coming out in Paul's writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.5. And if anyone enters competitive games, he is not crowned unless he competes lawfully or fairly according to the rules that are laid down. Now, when the, the, the victor of a given event who had participated according to the rules was led by the judge to the platform of the judge called the beamer. And there the laurel wreath was placed on his head as a symbol of victory. And again, Paul, we learn this from Paul's writings in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. Uh, and I'm reading this out of the Amplified to kind of help um, make the point. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run their very best to win, but only one receives the prize? Run your race in such a way that you may seize the prize and make it yours. Now, every athlete who goes into training and competes in the games is disciplined and exercises self-control in all things. <coughs> they do it to win a, a woven laurel wreath, a crown that withers, but we do it to receive an imperishable crown that will not wither. Isn't that good? All right, so the, the point that we're making in this is 
Paul says that the judgment seat that we face, he refers to it as the Bema seat. It's not a seat of judgment. It's a, it's a seat where there, there is judging, but it's judging in the form of how should we reward, what is the prize that we should give for the race that has been won. That's what we are, are going to be facing. Is, is this a positive thing? Okay. So in all of these passages, Paul was picturing the believer as a competitor in a spiritual contest. As the victorious Grecian athlete appeared before the beamer to receive his perishable award, so too the Christian will appear before Christ's beamer to receive his imperishable award. The judge at the beamer bestowed rewards to the victors. He did not whip the losers. We might add, neither did he sentence them to hard labour. In other words, it was a reward seat and portrayed a time of rewards or loss of rewards following examination. It was not a time of punishment where believers are judged for their sins. Such would be inconsistent with the finished work of the cross and because he is totally paid for our sins. So is that, is that helpful? So the, the picture that Paul is painting is that it, it is like we've run the race, we run into heaven. Uh, you know, I imagine coming screaming into heaven with, you know, flaming arrows firing at me in all directions and, and a horde of, of demons trying to stop me and, and hold me down and I come screeching into heaven. Right? And to, to you know, what, what happens? Think of it like, like the marathon race, right? Here's these guys, they're out, they're running, they're running, they're running, and there's people lining the, lining the streets and, they, you know, they're getting, they're, they're getting a little golf clap as they, as they run by, you know, by the, the, you know, maybe it's like two or three people deep at some points where people are clapping them as they're running along. But then, you know, they, they get onto the main avenue leading up to the stadium and the guy who's in the front, you know, as, as he's running up, they've usually got the cameras with him, you know, the guys on the motorbike, and they're, they're riding alongside of him as he, he, he comes up the avenue towards the stadium. And then he goes into the, the, the breezeway from the outside to the inside. And as he emerges onto the track, 100,000 people suddenly rise to their feet and a roar goes out across the city as he, as he enters in to do the final lap uh, into, into his uh, reward. And, and, you know, in the, the, this, is, this is the kind of the, the thing that we will be facing as we come into heaven. Look, did, did that guy stumble? Maybe as he was running along, he stumbled and he fell. You know, his knees bleeding. He, he's, he's suffering with a stitch. And, and uh, you know, may, maybe he, he tripped someone else up along the way or, you know... He, he, has he run a perfect race? No. 
No, you know, he, he wasn't breathing right at the start and he went out too hard and, and he fell back. And like he, so he, he, he hasn't run a perfect race. But the thing is, he has run a marathon at an Olympic level. And the, the amazing thing about it, for, for those of us that have watched the Olympics, is the first guy into the stadium gets a roar of a thousand people. But you know what? The 50th guy gets the same roar. And this is the amazing thing about the marathon is that everybody loves the fact that this man or this woman has actually finished the race. And because they've finished the race, there is a celebration. It doesn't matter whether they're going to get the gold or the silver or the bronze. They have run an Olympic marathon. And there is, there is an acknowledgement, a worldwide acknowledgement for them completing that race. And that's the same thing for us as believers. It doesn't matter if you've run a perfect race. It doesn't matter if you've tripped up and you've fallen over and you've made mistakes along the way. The thing is, the scripture says that, and again it's Paul, <laughs> who says, he who endures to the end will receive a crown of righteousness. And so as, as we run towards the prize, there is a crown that awaits the finisher. And this is, this is what um, Paul is, is trying to portray for us. So we learn that the Bema seat then is a judgment, but it's not a punitive judgment, it's an evaluation. And it's an evaluation for works. Though believers are under no condemnation in respect to their sins, because we're justified by faith, we've got a whole raft of scriptures that, that teach us that, they are subject to judgment at the judgment seat of Christ in relation to their works. Oh, Todd, are you preaching a works doctrine here? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that you are saved by your works. What I'm saying is that you are rewarded for your works. And that's a big difference because that means, uh, is your salvation assured through your faith in Christ? Yes, absolutely. But if you choose to squander that life that now belongs to Christ then there's going to be very little reward at the end. But if you take this life that you have laid down and given to him, which he has then given back to you, and you live it for him, there is a promise of great reward for those who are faithful. And I want to show you the scriptures around this. So let's start. Back at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Now, this was that scary scripture that we read before. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. What's, what judgment are we talking about? Bema seat, evaluation. Okay? We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil. Ooh, the good or evil 
we have done in this earthly body. Now, what I want to point out around this is the words good or evil here are good, agathos, and evil, kakos. Now, um, let's, let, you know, uh, I, I can come and say, Lockie, have you been a good boy? Now, what am I asking him? I'm asking him about his morality, am I? Right? What if I, I, I come and say, um, Matt, how is your basketball game on the weekend? And he says, oh, it was really bad. Oh, so what he's telling me is that the basketball game was evil. It was an evil and wicked basketball game. Is that right? No, what is he telling me? Badly, so he performed in an evil and wicked way. Is that what you're telling me? No, no. You're, you're not making a statement about his morality. You're making a statement about the worthiness of his, uh, the way that he and his team played or, or the usefulness of it or the, the, the value of it, right? So just like we can say, um, you know, how was your day? It was really bad. I'm not saying that my day was wicked and evil. I'm saying it was it was difficult. It was or it was not. It wasn't a useful day. Or do you understand what I'm saying? So, just like in the English language, we use the words good and bad as both a statement of morality as well as a statement of usefulness, okay? So we can say, this hammer is bad. Do I mean that it is morally evil? No, I mean it is functionally useless. Do you get my point? Now, we always talk about how different the Greek language is to the English language. Well, on this point, it's exactly the same. The Greeks used the word good and bad to mean a statement of moral measurement, but also a statement of measuring usefulness, just like we do. Yes, that's right. Yeah, performance, usefulness, value, worthiness. So can you see how the translators have translated this as a moral statement rather than a functional statement? So we could just as easily read this and say, for we must all stand before Christ to be evaluated. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the usefulness or unusefulness of what we have done in this earthly body. And you see, suddenly, 
just by translating this simply from being a moral statement to a functional statement, it totally changes the view that comes out of this scripture. Rather than it being God is standing there with a stick and he's waiting to beat up on us for our evil deeds, it becomes he's going to look at our lives and decide like a, like a strict judge in the Olympics, he's going to look at our lives and decide what is worthy, what is useful and what is not. Well, that sounds scary, Todd. What's, what is he going to do if he finds stuff that's unuseful or unworthy? Maybe we should go and find out.